a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Chris Garlock here. Ed Smith is away this week, but that's all right. We've got Damon Silvers in studio. Damon, so good to have you here. Uh, nice to see you, and nice to be with you, Chris. But uh, stay on the other side of the table there, all right? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, far away. <laughs> we're we're going to be broadcasting, you know. <laughs> Self-quarantining. Remote, remotely. Here in the studio. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about this hour, coronavirus and your rights at work. Uh, but first, some breaking news. Uh, there is no strike at Safeway literally went down to the wire early hours of this morning. Uh, the folks at Safeway finally got their contract. And actually, uh, even as we speak at this hour, uh, the Safeway workers are meeting, looking that contract over. Uh, the key thing, Damon, is uh, that's kept them at the table for months now, actually, was pensions. And I know you've uh, you've seen this issue uh, be a deal breaker before. That's so uh, uh, health care and, and pensions. Oh, yeah. Well, they're really, really important uh, to working people, and they do cost money. Yes. Uh, and um, that combination often uh, means that we have to fight really hard for health care and pensions, but they're worth fighting for and worth winning. Well, kudos to Local 400. That's UFCW Local 400. And and uh, as their president, Mark Federici, said, uh, it's the members. The members were fired up. I was to a number of their rallies, and they were they were ready to strike. They were going to take a strike vote today and go out. I think they've got to give a couple of days' notice before they actually hit the streets. But they were they were ready to go, and uh, they got uh, they protected their pensions, they protected their health care, and they got a, a nice uh, raise too. So when you're uh, and the folks at Giant had already gotten a deal, they voted that uh, this morning. That's been approved. So the next time you go shopping at Giant or Safeway, uh, say congratulations. Congratulations to your your checkout folks. Yeah, there. and it is actually important to go shopping. Uh, yes, at at, uh, uh, at places that um, that do negotiate, sign, and honor contracts. Even when they're tough fights, look, that's that's the way that's the deal here. Uh, but you know, they they do have contracts, so support those folks. Absolutely. All right. Uh, before we get to our show, it is Women's History Month. Uh, month of March started on uh, last Sunday, so our lines are open. You know, we always do a little you know labor music at the half. So if you've got suggestions about a good song uh, about women at work, I was th- sort of thinking about a bunch of classic songs, but I have a feeling there's probably some cooler stuff out there that I may not know of. So. Call producer Pete. He's standing by at 202-588-0893. That's 202-588-0893. And we will play your song uh, at the half. Now, coronavirus, uh, you know, basically, folks... If you're sick, you want to stay home. You want to wash your hands. Uh, they've got they've got all these YouTube videos out in the proper way. I have been schooled on this now. Lots of the the soap and the water and all of that stuff. So we we know that that part is covered. What we want to talk about here on your rights at work is exactly that question of what are folks rights at work in regards to this coronavirus. And, and there was this wonderful story uh, in the New York Times earlier this week uh, that talked about this and raised, you know, po- folks are being, you know, uh, 
put on layoff. They're being sent home. The, you know, all kinds of things are happening. So, uh, in addition to uh, Damon to talk about this issue, uh, we've invited a couple of folks to uh, join us. We'll have a nurse joining us a little bit later in the hour. Uh, but first up, I wanted to bring in both uh, Judy Conti and Joanna Blotner. They've both been on the show before. Uh, Judy and Joanna, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Hi there, everybody. This is Judy. Okay. And Judy, of course, Government Affairs Director at the National Employment Law Project. Uh, and Joanna with Judy United for Justice and did a ton of work on paid sick leave. Joanna, I want to start with you because, uh, you guys put out a terrific piece about, uh, you know, if you're sick, stay, say, you know, use those sick leave. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I also want to say I did not actually work on our D.C. paid sick leave campaign. JUFJ did. I was not there. Um, but I did work on paid family leave. A little bit different. Um, but, yeah, we felt really, um, really, it was really important to say to people that, you know, if you live in or work in the D.C. area, you probably have paid sick days. Certainly if you work in D.C. and for a lot of folks who work in Maryland, you have the right to stay home with pay when you are ill. Um, to care for yourself and your family member. Um, and we were seeing a lot of uh, buzz going around about people should stay home without the context of, you know, for some people, staying home without pay is not really a realistic option. So we want to remind them that that is your right here in the district. Yeah, I know this is, uh, first, let me just say what a pleasure it is to be with both of you. Um, for our listeners, you know, Judy and Joanna are people who have really made a huge difference for working people in, in the district and around the country. Um, you know, Judy in particular, um, we've worked together for decades, uh, and uh, just one of the one of the sort of um, unsung heroes of our of our time. But we uh, sing about her on this show all the yeah, time. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. My head is swelling right now. Thank you, and the uh, feelings are entirely mutual. I, uh, I, you, you guys are are sung and unsung heroes of our movement. Yeah, well, some of us, some of us, you don't want to sing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's. T- can I just sort of, you know, uh, talk for a minute? I mean, can we? Can you guys talk for a minute about the implications of paid sick days um, for you know fighting uh, an infectious disease like this? Um, you know, it, 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 we often hear not just in conservative, but sometimes in 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 more liberal circles about how you know, oh, we've got to be concerned about incentives and all this kind of thing. And then something like this comes along, and uh, you know, it turns out it's it's about a lot more than it's about a lot more than it seems to be. And I wonder if you guys might talk about that for a minute. It, it's an absolute public health imperative to have sick days for something like this, and and not even for something like this, right? I mean, one of the reasons why. We've won so many paid sick leave campaigns across the country is because we talk not just about the need for people to stay home when they're sick, but the cost of presenteeism. When people come to work when they are sick, when they, they, they are less productive, they infect other people who then get sick and either miss work or are less productive, right? There, there are costs to employers for having sick people come to work, and it's bad enough when it's the common cold or a stomach virus or even influenza. But when you're talking about, you know, a p- potential global pandemic like this, it makes you realize just how fragile we all are because of our country's laissez-faire attitude, by and large, towards workers and the benefits that they should all have as a matter of course. We are all made more vulnerable because we 
have made the policy choices to treat low-wage workers like they don't matter. And it hurts them most of all, but self-interestedly, even people that don't self don't fancy themselves to be liberals or workers' rights advocates, they should be very worried that everybody out there in food service, um, working in retail, our on-demand economy, people who are driving and delivering food and driving us around and doing our grocery shopping for us, that they've got no safety net, no ability to stay home if they're sick and still get paid, or stay home and take care of their kids when their kids are sick and still get paid, and, and maybe even not lose their jobs, because that's another problem here. When you don't have any ability to take paid sick leave, you may also have just no ability to take sick leave at all. You may get fired when you do so. Joanna? Yeah, I would completely agree with all of that. This is completely an imperative. And, um, you know, I think for uh, for me, what this really brings up is, is some of the loopholes that, that do exist in some of our laws even. You know, in D.C., for example, if you're a contractor, you don't have paid sick days. You know, that's a huge loophole that, that we should be addressing as more people are shifting into that gig economy and into into contract work. I think in Maryland, they had exceptions for people who work for small businesses um, and when you think about things like a public health pandemic going on, you know, sure, we want to be sensitive to the needs and, and the cost of to small businesses. But, you know, what are the costs of public health when people can't stay home and take care of themselves and their loved ones? Um, this is this is much more than just a worker rights situation. This is public health much more broadly. You know, Chris, uh Listening to Joanna and Judy, you, you, you know, we often you, you get in policy debates and people scratch their heads and, and ask, well, why is it that our healthcare system costs twice as much as everybody else's and and delivers substandard results? Right, we're sicker. We, uh, uh, you know, working people in this country in some demographics are having declining living standards, and people say, well, why do we spend so much money and get such terrible results? And maybe it's because we encourage people who are sick to go to work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps that has something to do with it, or in this situation, and maybe we can talk about this for a second, that we make it expensive to be tested right. to see whether you have a highly communicable and potentially lethal disease, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, why is that not free? That, exactly. Can, can I want to ask that question because I really I've been reading about how this is being dealt with in other countries where they I saw someplace and I want to say maybe it was Japan maybe it's Korea I forget they had like drive up you they didn't want people to get out of the cars you drive up they do the testing and 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 keep on moving it why, why do we not have that I mean just to echo Damon what what so who wants to take that one well. I, I, Talk about a great rhetorical question, right? There's no good <laughs> answer. I mean, look, we, as with most things in our country, our notions of American exceptionalism and everybody pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, and if they do, then all of these wonderful things will happen to you. We, we look at things like this as privileges and not benefits. And if we, if we do the historical analysis, we realize that all of it is rooted in our nation's founding in slavery and our unwillingness to want to provide certain benefits, certain rights, certain decencies to, to black people in particular and people of color even more generally. Um, and it is no wonder that our country has developed um, into such a, a dichotomy between have and have not. It's no wonder that people of color, of color are disproportionately represented in the category of have nots. 
And it's it's no wonder that we don't want to give workers in the lower echelon of things um, the same kind of, you know, privileges that those of us who are well-paid have. It, and it's, it's not because we don't necessarily value the work, right? I mean, we, we all want people in our retail establishments and, and CNAs and hospitals and fast food and food delivery and all of this. We, we value the work to some degree, but we don't value the worker. I mean, that's, right. that's the hard reality. So why don't we provide it? Because we don't value the workers, because largely the low-wage workers in this country are women and people of color. And we don't value women and people of color in this country the way that we should. Well, of course, it turns out that we're in an event like this makes this point uh, in a way that's kind of hard to hide from. We are all bound exactly. together. We are all exactly. bound together. Because the virus doesn't and, care. Yeah, the virus does we, not care. Doesn't care what party you are. are. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't care what color you are. Exactly. You know, uh, you know, Chris. Can I? Yeah, sure. I, I want to. I happen to know a little bit about what you were talking about about the, uh, the 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 testing system you were describing, which is in Korea. Oh, Korea. Okay. Um, and there's another there's another thing that was that is being tested here. Uh, and the thing that's being tested here, in addition to whether or not people have the coronavirus, is do we have an effective government? And do we have an? I think on- we know the answer to and that. Do we, and do we have an <laughs> honest, honest government? government? And do we have an honest government? That's and, over too. Right. <laughs> well, see, the the there's a big contrast between what's going on in Japan and what's going on in mm-hmm. South in South Korea, and it tells us something about ourselves. In South Korea, the gov- there's a rel- there's a new relatively new progressive government, and they have been very intense about testing. And the thing about testing is you can't hide. Once you start testing everybody, then you really know, right? You can't pretend that you're not having a crisis. So the South Koreans have been very intense about this, and so they have a high level of recognized disease. Japan, not so much. Mm-hmm. The, the the testing in Japan has been very minimal, and they are trying to keep a very tight wrap on the whole thing and not be very forthcoming about exactly how many people have the disease. We, on the other hand, are doing a third thing, which is – Effectively chaos, right at the national level, mm-hmm. right? Effectively you don't chaos. Effective and chaos in the same sense. <laughs> well, what I mean by that is, is that all over the country, we are now having local government and local first responders try to do to deal with this effectively. And we're going to talk with a nurse in a second. We're going to hear what but, you're talking about. But what's missing is the kind of truthful, effective, consistent management. Uh, that we need to have at the national level, despite the fact that we have m- amazing resources and people, even after the budget cuts, in, in our agencies, right? They're not really being allowed to do their job. Uh, Joanna, this gets a little bit into the other area that you have worked in, but one of the things Damon and I were talking about on the way over is, you know, for years, you know, I've, I've actually advocated for, you know, what, what I used to call working at home, but I discovered that bosses don't like the phrase working at home. If you call it working remotely, it seems to fly better. But, you know, it's it's been something, there's been a big trend in it, you know, in recent years, but it is still a difficult set, you know, sell for a lot of bosses who get nervous when they don't see their workers at their desk. Although, as Damon pointed out, you know, just because he's sitting at his desk, now this is not true of Damon, I'm sure, but but, <laughs> but just because you're sitting at your desk does not necessarily mean that you're fully, you know, engaged, not surfing the net or watching. I'm you know, always engaged. Cat, cat videos or, or whatever. But, but now all of a sudden, the shoe is on the other foot and people are being told, you know, stay at home, you know, whether or not you're sick because, you know, you know, don't, because of not wanting to spread the disease. So, but it raises 
some some broader issues about the nature of work and where it happens and who controls it that I wonder if, if you've been thinking about. <laughs> yeah, it's actually funny you say that because I've had this conversation with a couple friends recently um, who, who largely work for progressive organizations, but the idea of teleworking or working from home is really hard for their companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it cuts into this this weird control mindset for um, for employers of knowing where your employees are, what they're doing at all hours of the day. Um, and even for the clients that, that people are working for, they want to have, you know, someone fully available on call, able to reach them at their desk. Some people, you know, don't give out their cell, cell numbers, for example. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting mindset into to what productivity is and into, like, the control mindset there. And I think it honestly comes up a lot of times in union negotiations, too, when workers try to unionize. You know, fighting for flexible policies is really difficult in contracts sometimes. And so it does get into this very large uh, mindset issue in America of, of what it means to be available 24-7 and to be present. Um, that can be really dangerous in situations like this where you're asked to come in, um, even if you're not feeling well, just for the sake of being present. Like Judy was saying, you know, what what's the, the, the return on that um, for people to come in, spread those diseases, um, to not be fully productive anyway? Yeah, the return on that is negative to everyone. <laughs> the, 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 that, that's a loss, right? <laughs> that's a loss to the person who's being made to work when they're sick, and that's a loss to everyone they come in, con- in contact with. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, and the thing about it that I just think is so fascinating is, is that especially when you look at the increasing commuting times, one of the calculations that I make is, you know, it can take me from 45 minutes to, you know, depending on what time, you know, hour, hour and a half to get in. Uh, you can do a lot on your on your cell phone. But I mean, you actually lose production, you know, productivity time as opposed to, you know, going to the dining room table and, and getting right to work. And, and as as, you know, Joanna, you're pointing out, that's been very difficult, you know, even with progressive employers, frankly. Um, but now all of a sudden, you know, with the coronavirus, all of a sudden folks are like, oh, you know. Well, you know, but, you know, Chris, this changes. Is, this is, and maybe our, our guest here can talk about this for a minute. You know, this situation that uh, forces a, a set of conversations that we should have been having decades That's ago. Right. That's right. Right. And Absolutely. all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, right. The fact that discouraging people from getting healthcare might be a bad idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I can't, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in with supposed, you know, progressives and, and, and Democratic Party policy people and stuff where they have all these fancy words that mean we want to discourage people from getting health care and they yes. think that's a good idea right that idea seems like really crazy at this moment so does the and so does the idea that we ought to be forcing sick people to work right that maybe i mean other countries stopped doing that because it was uncivilized because it was barbaric uh but but we seem to think it's okay until now you know and the idea that um the idea that we're just going to lie about everything in public life, particularly about science, and there'll be no consequences, that that turns out maybe not to be the best idea. Well, it's amazing. We heard at the top when uh, when Chris was doing the news, you know, that, that you know Trump was calling the World Health Organization liars, which, you know, you just... 
uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a face plan. Listen, let me re- uh, reintroduce. This is uh, Chris Garlock, Damon Silver is uh, your rights at work here on WPFW. Our guests uh, are this hour: Judy Conti from the National Employment Law Project, Joanna Blotner from Jews United for Justice. Uh, I believe we are being joined now uh, by Gary Mousseau. He's a registered nurse. He is down in Charlotte County, Florida. Gary, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, you're there in, in Charlotte County. Uh, you're, you're registered nurse, been doing this for 39 years. And I, I wanted to bring you in just to talk about what it's like for somebody who's a healthcare professional uh, on the front lines of this. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What kind of information are you getting? Well, um, I just wanted to let you know that I'm a very lucky nurse in that I belong to National Nurses United, uh, which is the largest registered nurse uh, union in the country, representing 200,000 RNs. And NNU has been wonderful for us, helping us stay abreast of the uh, healthcare information. Of course, we nurses are quite concerned because we're frontline, high-risk individuals, uh, but also, we want to do the best for our patients in the hospital. Uh, importantly, uh, our local paper, the Port Charlotte Sun, ran a front-page, top-of-the-fold uh, article this morning uh, indicating that there are uh, two confirmed cases in Florida, one presumptive positive case, uh, which is pending testing, uh, but that the state officials are staying quiet on the statistics uh, right now to protect patient privacy. Uh, but again, we're, uh, we're most concerned about, uh, keeping, uh, all of our nurses and hospitals up to date, uh, from the point of view of having the proper equipment, uh, having, uh, all the best information. And, uh, that's our chief concern right now to protect our safety and the safety of our patients. Gary, when I talked to you earlier this morning, you, you mentioned something really interesting to me, which was uh, that you had said that there uh, had not been any confirmed uh, cases, but you said that there was a lot of rumors flying around and that you, you know, information, real hard information was, was sort of hard to come by. And I know we've already seen news reports uh, nationally, you know, the CDC puts information up, they take information down. I mean, there seems to be a real sort of information management, and, and, and Damon was just talking about this, and it was very concerning to me, having already seen this on a national level, to hear that this might be happening on the local level. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, as I said, I feel very fortunate because our nurses union is doing a great job, and I encourage people to go to nationalnursesunited.org uh, there's several ar- uh, articles there. Um, importantly, uh, there was an article yesterday in the South Florida Sun Sentinel newspaper that said that uh, uh, the CDC had opened up testing uh, nationwide to uh, relax the standards so that more and more people could be tested, but that here in Florida, uh, the state uh, organization was staying to the previous standards, which uh, because they were worried that the three testing centers here in Florida would be overwhelmed. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of lots of testing, and I think that's true of all of our nurses. We'd like to know the truth about how this infection is moving. Yeah, um, Gary, uh, this is Damon Silvers. I, I uh, 
help Chris out here, but I work for the AFL-CIO, and I, I just want to add to what you just said and, and, and talk about some other resources that are available kind of uh, more broadly uh, in the labor movement uh, in, in this moment. The, I think as you were just talking, Gary, that the thing about what we started to learn at the AFL-CIO in the last few days is how many first responders and caregivers uh, uh, in the labor movement have been you know, incomprehensibly exposed here in ways that should never have happened. Uh, and the, how sort of, how it seems like the kinds of protocols that ought to have been in place for for nurses, for doctors, for firefighters, for hospital workers, for people in the transportation sector, uh, you know, just weren't there. Uh, and how important it is to get them in place immediately and for people to know what those protocols are. Uh, so when they go on the job, they know what to say to their employer, that you must do X, Y, and Z, or I'm not safe, and you're not safe either. Uh, and so the national, as, as Gary was saying, the National Nurses Union has been outstanding, as they always are in these kinds of situations, has been outstanding in terms of getting that kind of information out for the healthcare sector and on their website. DFL-CIO has a broader set of materials covering a, a wider range of, uh, of, uh, of job categories on our website, which is www.aflcio.org. Uh, but then beyond that, the unions of the labor movement in general are as on top of this as we can be, and 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 folks listening, uh, sh- you know, should be looking in addition to the AFL website to the websites of their union or the union in their sector. Uh, this is particularly true in, uh, for the postal workers, uh, flight attendants, pilots, uh, um, uh, firefighters, police, uh, all the folks who are first responders. And it's really worth noting that Gary and and his colleagues and and brothers and sisters in his union and all the unions I just mentioned. That as all of us try to effectively hide from this virus, these are the folks who go toward it. And it's it's always we have always got to remember that, you know, our lives are protected by these folks. Judy Conti, I want to bring you back in. Uh, you know, you're over at the National Employment Law Project, and, and I know this is – I have a feeling I'm going to be talking about this for, for a, a while to come yet, so I'm, I'm not intending to cover this all today, but just sort of begin a conversation. Uh, and I know we all just have a few minutes left uh, before we break uh, and, and let you all go. But, Judy, I'm just curious. So, you know, it, obviously union workers have more rights. You've got contracts. Um what if you're a non-union worker and you're being told, you know, to stay home or, or any of these kinds of, of things that, that are that are happening? What, what's what's your sort of uh, advice take on on those situations? Well, Chris, you make the the first point is the most important one, and I think I say this every time on your I'm on your show. It's a moment like this that proves yet again the best thing you can do as a worker is be part of a union mm-hmm. because you probably will have paid sick days. You will have somebody advocating for you to get the accommodations that you need in a current crisis. You will have your own unions, as Damon explained, looking out for your particular work group saying, do this, don't do this, this is how to best protect yourself. The AFL-CIO is, is calling for um, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to issue an emergency temporary standard directed at making sure that health care workers throughout this country are working in safe conditions in spite of this crisis. So, as ever, there's no substitute for being in a union. If you are not, if your employer is telling you you must come in or you can't come in or if you don't come in, this, ask a lot of questions. Make sure you're really clear on what they want you to do and why. Look at the Centers for Disease Control recommendations about how to handle things. If you have been exposed, 
if you have um, if you have to be quarantined, if you are feeling sick, know the difference between what are probably flu-like symptoms and what are coronavirus symptoms. Um, seek out help. I know that various divisions at the United States Department of Labor are working furiously on putting out public guidance. Look also at your state departments of labor um, and and find out what they're telling you about. In D.C., you can you can call the Central Label Council. You can call the Washington Committee for Civil Rights, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. They've got workers' rights clinics. Like, seek out resources and people that can help answer your questions because it's just a really serious moment. And um, I, I don't pretend for a second that the choice that a lot of low-wage workers are going to have to make isn't a hideous one. But, um, you know, God forbid you are in a situation where you are sick or where you are exposed to somebody who is sick. Um, as hard as it may be to think about losing wages or even losing a job, it's, it's better than losing a life. Um, and, and there are resources to help you get past economic hard times. So don't, don't be embarrassed to seek them out. Don't be embarrassed to look for them. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions. If your employer shuts your workplace down for any reason, um, you can apply for unemployment insurance. Do that right away. If you live someplace that is eventually declared a disaster, there is disaster unemployment assistance that will be available to you. Like there, there are resources. So use your Googles, ask questions, find the information. The NELP website will be updated uh, as we have more information for folks as well. And that's www.nelp.org. Great. And Joanna, uh, any last thoughts in, in the last uh, 30 seconds or so that we have? Yeah, the only other thing I'd say is push your local elected officials, if they have not already passed paid sick days, to do so. And if they already have a paid sick days law, make sure you're talking to your, your governor, your mayor, your elected officials. Tell them to issue public notices and reminders that paid sick days are your right. Many people don't know that they have paid sick days, even though they are legally um, on the books in <laughs> In that jurisdiction, this is a great time to, to demand public outreach and awareness um, is is doubled. This is all really, really good information. Uh, a lot of websites out there. We will have all of those links on our website, dclabor.org. Judy Conti, Joanna Blotner, and Gary Mousseau, thank you so much for bringing this information. Uh, and uh, don't forget to wash your hands. <laughs> and thank you, Chris and Damon. All right. Wonderful thank to be with you, all of you. Take care. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. That's uh Producer Pete, uh, we're going to have our little musical. Although uh, my, my uh, Mike, the engineer, says apparently, Mike, we're not we're not playing music on PFW anymore. Did what? I did I miss that memo? <laughs> did what? we not did we not do well I'm enough wrong, on the fundraiser? Am I was, wrong place? <laughs> I'm in the wrong building. Tell me it's not so. Tell me it's not so. All well, right. it ain't so, Chris. Don't All right. worry. Oh my God. Okay. In What's fact, that? in fact, what we've got is a, a too little known blues song by a woman named Gay Adigbalola. I uh -huh. hope I've got the pronunciation right. I ran across it almost 20 years ago, I think, and it's a very interesting song, which is called Big Ovaries, Baby.
a great choice really i love our callers that's a that's a really good way to go well we'll be doing that all month so uh, keep that in mind if uh, you didn't get through you can call in next week uh, with with your suggestion uh, to celebrate women's history month speaking of which mark your calendar now you don't want to miss this on march the 17th uh, which happens to be saint patrick's day but it's also when we're going to do this year's performance of we were there if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about if you haven't you want to be there six o'clock at the tacoma bus boys and poets over in our neighborhood damon yeah it's a nice place it's a nice place good food good drink and what they do with this is they take uh labor history uh and and some amazing kinds of stuff that maybe you've never heard about or maybe some stuff that you have heard about but framed in a whole other way and it's a cool performance it's kind of a spoken word uh performance but they all kinds of different people do it so i don't know what the lineup's going to be yet but i do know uh that our sister elise brian and the good folks at the dc labor chorus are running it so you know it's going to be good anything that involves them is worth is worth coming out for absolutely absolutely so uh uh it's free so the price is right but uh i know that the rcps are going fast uh and people have just been signing up and so i think every year we'll be doing this there and it's it's basically packed every year uh and in this year particularly uh just a little reminder it is an election year uh we we all need to get out and vote but i think particularly given the current leadership uh we definitely i'm going to be talking about this all well i've talked the whole time but uh it's women's history month so let's get the the women's vote out there uh, this is a really good reminder this particular show we were there uh is about the women in the labor movement and it has everything from you know brand new folks in the women's uh, labor movement right on back to uh the very before the before there was a labor movement <laughs> well you know as i was chris i was just thinking as um here in this very gender diverse uh, studio you and I have here. <laughs> With the most testosterone well, going yeah, here. <laughs> you know, uh, but I was just thinking about the fact that really the, you know, the first, uh, it's important to maybe we remember that the first industrial strike in the United States was by women workers. Uh, Tell folks. Uh, so, 
um, in, in the 1830s, and I cannot remember the year, but in the 1830s, that's close enough. Yeah, there was there were very few factories in the United States, and the and the biggest and no unions, and there were very few unions. There were guilds and there were crafts guilds. and that's so right. forth, but there were very few unions. Um, one of the I should say I would make a point of saying this that one of the unions that did exist at that time was a hidden secret illegal union of of enslaved longshore workers in South Carolina. Uh, and uh, it's important to remember when we think about labor history that one of our oldest roots uh, is in is in South Carolina slave rebellion uh, in the labor movement, and that goes right to the Longshore local that is in that community today. Today, today. Right. But we're talking about women, and in Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, was the biggest factory in the country at the time, and all of the line workers in that factory were women, uh, and they struck, uh, and they struck and and won uh, in wage gains. Uh, in the 1830s. And the fascinating thing about that strike is that they were all women, but they were women from uh, hugely diverse backgrounds. They were, I think, almost entirely immigrant women. Oh, no, that's a later strike. Oh, no, okay, I'm mixing no, up my no, strikes actually, now. This is <laughs> so, yeah, I'm getting confused. Right, no, the, the Lawrence strike, there's Lowell and Lawrence, and there are two cities in Massachusetts next to each other. The Lawrence strike is in 1913 and is exactly what you that's said. A, okay, sorry. The Lowell strike is almost 100 years earlier and is actually completely undiverse. It is the workers in that factory were all recruited off of farms in New England. Particularly, oh, no kidding. Particularly in, in, Massachusetts, in, uh, North, in New Hampshire and Vermont. And they were, they were all uh, the 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 children. A lot of them were children of Revolutionary War veterans, and they were very conscious of that. And when they wrote their strike materials, they said, "You know, we are we are the daughters of the Revolution, and you can't treat us this way." That that was that's what amazing. that's what their strike materials said. And uh, you know, it, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing story. And there is a children's book about it that uh, again I can't remember the name of. But for those of you who have kids who want to hear, hear about labor history, the the the, the I think it's called maybe called Mill Girl. But the children's book is really I think you're right. Is I think really you're right. that uh, rings a bell. Is a really excellent book, and the story is a the story is a uh, it's a fantastic story about where our roots really lie. Well, folks, Damon Sowers, you, you just never know what, what you're going to learn on this show, do you? So thank you for that. You are listening to Your Rights of Work, and it is time for our weekly case close feature. And this week, uh, we're joined by none other than David Schloss. He's a partner in the law firm of Coons McKinney, McKinney, McKinney I can say that, Johnson and DePaulis. David, thanks for being with us. How you doing? Well, you know, we were talking about coronavirus uh, earlier, so I'm, I'm feeling, uh, you know, a little uh, contagious here. I don't know. What do you got for us? Well, let's see if I can um, um, talk about something a little happier, maybe. It's got a happy <laughs> ending, at least. How about that? Uh, we'll take it. We'll take uh, it. All right. So um, I want to talk to you uh, and your audience today about a, a case that involves a legal doctrine that you may or may not have heard of, and it's called the discovery rule. And basically what the discovery rule refers to is uh, what, what is an exception to the uh, concept of a statute of limitations. So statute of limitations refers to a deadline uh, that uh, you have to meet in order to pursue a claim, whether it's a workers' comp case or a negligence case, um, most civil actions and workers' compensation actions have statutes of limitations, deadlines, after which uh, the plaintiff or the claimant is forever barred 
from bringing the case. Can, can, so, I, can I just jump yeah. in? Can I ask you? I mean, I'm the layman here because Damon's actually another uh, lawyer <laughs> as well, so he probably knows the answer to this, but I don't, and, and so I'm going to assume some of my listeners don't either, but why, why would there be a statute of limitations? And I ask because, as, as, a, as an ignorant layman, I know that there's no statute of limitations for, for murder, right? Mm-hmm. If, I, if I kill somebody and get away with it for 50 years, I can still get brought up on it. So I'm just this may be a whole other complicated thing. I don't mean to open up a can of worms, but I'm just curious. Yeah, so uh, it's a great question, and there's a variety of reasons, but but per- perhaps the main reason is, in many cases, a witness's memory uh, uh, is important, right? Sure. And as time goes by, um, as you might imagine, a witness's memory uh, uh, gets a little fuzzier, and so... Uh, so, so that's one of the reasons that they, they think both the plaintiff or the claimant, as well as any eyewitnesses to whatever happened to the plaintiff or claimant, um, uh, should have to, uh, if someone's seeking benefits or if someone on the criminal side is going to be subject to to a um, to incar- possible incarceration, they think it should be based on, you know, as, as fresh a memory and fresh witness testimony as possible. Now, that's the benign view. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, Chris, but as you know, uh, sometimes I also share with you the more cynical view, right? And the more cynical, yeah, and the more cynical view is, um, as you might imagine, uh, employers and and corporate defendants um, have lobbied the state legislatures to make sure that those time frames are as short as possible, right? Uh-huh. I, I... And 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 you know, I mean, they have a lot of power. Even even um, you know, uh, in the District of Columbia, where where we would like to think that workers' rights are recognized, uh, that hasn't always been the case. I mean, um, the D.C. Chamber of Commerce um, lobbied very hard uh, several years ago to uh, change the workers' comp statutes and create uh, new deadlines and, and new limitations on the type of, of money that could be recovered. So even in a progressive uh, jurisdiction like the District of Columbia, uh, we are always we are always fighting against the, um, uh, uh, the entities that have sort of di- divergent interests from uh, us and our union clients. So, you, know, you know, David, there's a, a point it might be worth sort of making here for our audience which is uh-huh. that that because sometimes people find out about deadlines and this kind of thing and feel like their case is hopeless and it's not always true correct right? that's right? exactly right you know that 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 the law does provide that if uh, things have been hidden people you know and you know if if a person doesn't know they've been taken advantage of in some way, if, if evidence has been, uh, if evidence has been, you know, consciously yep. suppressed, there's a bunch of rules here that can get around a statute of limitations. Yeah, and- that, that's exactly right, Damon. And, and, and in fact, that was what I wanted to sort of talk about today. One of those exceptions, but you're mm-hmm. right. There's several exceptions. Fraud, you alluded right. to fraud. That's certainly one that, and, and, and basically what, what we say is that things like fraud toll, T-O-L-L, the statute of limitations. Well, the discovery rule is, a, is, a, is another one. And um, what that means is that the clock doesn't begin to start ticking until the plaintiff or claimant, and I keep saying plaintiff or claimant, but just for, for the benefit of the audience, um, plaintiff would be the term used in a negligence case, claimant would be 
the term used in a workers' comp or other administrative case. And uh, what the discovery rule says is that the clock doesn't begin to tick until the claimant or plaintiff knew or should have known about uh, the negligent conduct or about the work-relatedness of the injury. Okay? So, for example, let's, let's talk about a workers' comp case because a lot of the uh, union members that are listening um, – uh, you know, have the misfortune of being hurt at work. So, in general, there are two statutes of limitations. Uh, 30 days to notify your employer of the injury, and one year to file a written claim. Now, that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that is, is generally speaking, uh, what the deadlines are, and it's specifically what the deadlines are in the District of Columbia. Let's take an example of a guy I represented several years ago who was an elevator mechanic who had a history of back problems. So, uh, Chris, you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, it's okay that he had prior back issues because the aggravation rule allows him to uh, pursue a claim. But in this particular instance, he had been in the trade for 30 years. So he had had back problems, as you might expect, um, and, in fact, he had been going to his primary care physician's office. He would see a nurse practitioner there. He would complain to the nurse practitioner, you know, every time I wear my um, uh, tool belt at work, it, it hurts me. My back starts hurting more because, you know, these guys wear heavy heavy uh, tool belts, right? And so um, eventually he gets uh, seen for the first time at the primary care physician's office by an actual doctor as opposed to a nurse practitioner. And the doctor says, whoa, you have, to, you have multi-level herniated discs in your back. They are related to your years in the elevator trade, okay, as an elevator mechanic, and you need to stop working. You need to retire. Wow. Um, so he calls me. Uh, the union refers mm-hmm. him to me. I, I, I file his claim. We go to a hearing, and the defense, you, as you might imagine, is, okay, well, he didn't notify us within 30 days, and he didn't file his claim in one year, and so statute of limitations, SOL, stands for a couple different things, right? <laughs> um, Careful. And so, some, of those, some of those things you can't say on the air. Exactly. Exactly. So... So we got to keep we got to keep Chris going, you know, on and on. Right? <laughs> not, the, right. not that the FCC is paying any attention whatsoever. Well, you know, <laughs> so so we go to a hearing, and and they argue statute of limitations, and the judge agrees with them. The no. judge specifically points to the 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 reference in the medical report from years ago, which says he complained about the tool belt and how his back started hurting when he was wearing the, the, the tool belt. And so the judge said, even under the discovery rule, Mr. Schloss, you lose. Even though uh, the clock doesn't start ticking till he knows about the work-relatedness of his back condition, the, the reference to the tool belt is evidence that he knew about the work-relatedness back then, and he didn't report it and he didn't file his claim. We appealed that, and my argument to the court of uh, to the compensation review board was that it's not enough that the discovery rule in a workers' comp case um, is it's not enough to show or for the the, the employer to show work 
work-relatedness and knowledge of work-relatedness. But in fact, I argued that the clock does not begin to tick until the employee knows that it's a disabling injury. Okay? And what that means is, in my case, uh, this guy didn't know he was going to start missing work. Okay? He didn't know he was going to have to make a claim for wage loss benefits until what? Until the doctor took him off work, right? And that's when the clock began to tick, and the Compensation Review Board agreed with me on that. They changed the law in the district to to uh, to say that the discovery rule in a workers' compensation case not only requires knowledge of work-relatedness, but also requires knowledge of a disability, that being the key in a workers' compensation case. So uh, I was able to successfully uh, win the appeal, and the gentleman was able to retire uh, because I was able to uh, get him workers' compensation benefits. Now, look, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you should not uh, report these things right away if you have a, an inkling that there's something work-related going on. But it does mean that, uh, as, as one of you said, it does mean that even if you don't report it right away and your claim is denied, don't give up, okay? Even if they say you're too late, even if they say the deadlines have passed, don't give up. Call your unions. Call a lawyer. Uh, we'll look into it for you. And um, there sometimes is, is, is light at the end of the tunnel where it doesn't look like uh, there might be. Well, it occurs to me, and I'm just sort of thinking about this, you know, you've got the law, and, and the law has got lots, as as you guys both know, lots of fascinating, you know, crevices and, and, and all, you know, things that are, are you know, potential and, and but one of the things I think about is that, you know, there's also just human beings, right? And, you know, if you're a young guy and, and, and you know, uh, you don't want to necessarily be, be run to the doctor or, or it might not occur to you. Uh, you know, that something could be a problem. That's, and I don't know what age he was when he had the tool belt, but I mean, well, you know what I'm saying? The, the difference between yeah. knowing that something, you know, geez, that hurts as opposed to, you know, how that might hit you at 30 or 35 as to how that might hit you 10 or 15 years later or whatever. We all have an internal clock, right? Uh, you know, that, that seems like a very human sort of thing. And, and it seems like what you don't want, and this goes back to Damon, our conversation earlier, you know, when we were talking about coronavirus and trying to, we were talking about this on the way over you know you want to be careful but i mean you know nobody wants to shake hands anymore i mean and you know this is as uh, david as you know in the labor movement we're big huggers in the labor movement i mean we hug all yeah. the time and you know, now okay now we're not supposed to hug you know i mean but but damon was saying well he's not even sure that the fist bumping is is keeping us safe right so i mean these these lines they don't seem clear cut to me i guess is what i'm trying to say i think uh that's absolutely true and let me let me let me um Piggyback on what you just said, Chris, real quickly. So um, I, I uh, teach union apprentice classes, and, uh, and basically the, the gist of my presentation is, you know, what, what to do if you get hurt at work. And invariably, these young kids ask me the question. I'm actually teaching one for the uh, sheet metal workers tomorrow. Uh, and, and invariably, they ask the question, well, 
gosh, are you saying I should report every single thing that happens to me at work? Right? Because and, it, and it could think, sound like right, that. You might get well, tetanus, you know, like every scratch. Well, right? that's right. That's right. Or, you know, if I get a paper cut, uh, filling out my paperwork, should I report that? And, and it's, a, it's a fair question. By the way, particularly when they're younger, you know, they don't want to rock the boat, oh, no. and and they're supervised. they're invincible. Been, yes, they're yeah. invincible. That's more important point is that when you, when you're 25, you're, you're an apprentice at 25, and yeah, I broke a thumb. So uh, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> I put yeah. some duct tape on. I was good to go. Yeah. So here's here's uh, the here's the test. So, so Chris, you're right. There's no bright line rule on it. But here's what I tell them when I teach these classes. I say, if it's something that you know or think is going to require you to go see a doctor. You need to report it, okay? You don't need to, we don't even need to pursue the claim on your behalf, but you need to report it. Um, because if you don't, what happens in the future um, if, it, if it becomes something much more serious? We better be able to look back on that claim that we filed on your behalf when we didn't think it was anything serious, right? And we better be able to point back to that and say yes, he did file a claim. It was we we sometimes call it a protective filing, right? And um, that way you're covered. That way you're covered if it turns out to be something more serious. Hopefully it doesn't, but if it does, you're covered. I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, uh, one good example, uh, perhaps on my next, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a couple weeks. So you, you know, uh, Chris. This brings us back, in a way, sort of to our conversation earlier about about coronavirus, mm-hmm. but it makes a larger point about health and safety and about health and safety and workers and employers. I, I learned when I was in business school that uh, when in the in when business executives talked about health and safety, they, they would always talk about it in terms of it's the workers' fault. Our workers are so reckless. Our workers are so careless. They don't care about safety. They just you know walk into unguarded machine tools and this kind of stuff, and. There's a little bit of that going on. There's a little bit of that, I think, going on with the coronavirus in the following way. Absolutely, we should all be taking the precautions we're being told to take. We should, you know, use the hand sanitizer and and do the fist bumps and, you know, restrain. Elbow bumps, apparently. Elbow bumps, That's that's a new thing. And and we should absolutely do all those things. But the reality is, if we don't have our basic public health structure covered, if our employers, uh, and particularly the employers of our first responders, are not putting in the protocols in place, all that fist bumping is not going to help us, right? And and that is the, that, that is sort of, the labor movement reality here, which we've learned over decades, is if you want to have a safe workplace, you actually have to have a safe workplace. It, the, the employer needs to invest in both the machinery, the protocols, the rules to make that happen. And if they don't, then the line worker is not going to be able to fix that. If you don't have the right mask when you go into an, uh, a, a, a coronavirus-infected area as a firefighter or, 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 or a, a, a nurse, if you don't have the right mask, all the fist bumping is not going to help you. And that's going to do it for this week's edition. David Schloss, thanks so much for being uh, with us. We'll see you in two weeks. Damon Silver, is always wonderful to see you. Yeah, appreciate likewise. your sitting in. Great to be with you. Marvelous Michael Nacella has been our engineer. Pete Pocock is our producer. And it looks like Chris Banger Drowns is going to come back with some more news. We are not responsible for news. If you don't like it, sorry about that. Uh, but we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This is-